it's Hannah, and welcome to an episode of The Freezer Files. So today, we are going to be talking about the children who went up in smoke. For nearly four decades, anyone driving down Route 16 near Fayetteville, West Virginia, could see a billboard bearing the grainy image of five children. They were all dark hair, solemn-eyed, and their names and ages were Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louise, 9, Janine, 8, Betty, and and Betty, 5. Stenciled beneath them um, was like a speculation of what happened to them because no one actually knows what happened to them. So basically, here's the story. Um, Fayetteville, it was a small town with a street that doesn't run longer than 100 yards, and rumors always played a larger role in the case than the evidence. No one ever agreed on whether the children were dead or alive. What everyone knew for sure was on the night before Christmas, 1945, George and Janine Sauter and nine of their ten children went to sleep. One son was away at the army. Around 1 a.m., a fire broke out. George and Janine and four of their children, four of their children escaped, but the other five were never seen again. George had tried to save them by breaking a window to re-enter the house, slicing his arms. He could see nothing through the smoke and fire, which had swept through all of the downstairs rooms, living room, dining room, kitchen, office, his and Janine's bedroom. He took frantic stock of what he knew. Two-year-old Sylvia, whose crib was in their bedroom, was safe outside, as was 19-year-old Marion and two sons, 23-year-old John and 16-year-old George Jr., who fled the upstairs bedroom that he shared with his other siblings. He... He figured Maurice, Martha, Louise, Jean, Janine, and Betty still had to be up there, cowering two bedrooms on either end of the hallway, separated by a staircase that was now engulfed in flames. He raced back outside, hoping to reach them through the upstairs windows, but the ladder he always kept propped against the house was strangely missing. An idea struck. He would drive one of his two coal trucks to the house and climb atop it to reach the window, but even though they'd functioned perfectly the day before, neither of them would start. He ransacked his mind for another option. He tried to scoop water from a rain barrel, but it was frozen solid. Five of his children were stuck somewhere inside those great whipping ropes of smoke, and he didn't even notice his arm was slick with blood or that his voice hurt from screaming their names. His daughter, Marion, sprinted to a neighbor's home to call the Fayetteville Fire Department, but they couldn't get an operator's response. A neighbor who saw the blaze made a call from a nearby tavern. Again, no operator responded. So tired, the neighbor drove into the town. Exasperated, the neighbor drove into town and tracked down the fire chief, F.I. Morris, who initiated Fayetteville's version of a fire alarm, a phone tree system. George and Janine assumed that the five of their children were dead. The fire department was only two and a half miles away, but the crew didn't arrive until 8 a.m., by which point the Sutter's home had been reduced to a smoking pile of ash. George and Janine assumed that the five of their children were dead, but a brief search of the grounds on Christmas Day turned up no trace of remains. Chief Morris suggested that the blaze had been hot enough to completely cremate the bodies. A state police inspector combed the rubble and attributed the fire to faulty wiring. George covered the basement with five feet of dirt indenting to preserve the site as a memorial, but the coroner's office issued five death certificates just before the new year. 
saying the cause was fire or suffocation. But the Sodders began to wonder if their children were still alive. The Sodders planted flowers across the space where their house had stood, and they began to stitch together a series of odd moments leading up to the fire. There was a stranger who appeared at the home a few months earlier back in the fall, asking about hauling work. He meandered to the back of the house and pointed to two separate fuse boxes and said, This is going to cause a fire someday. Strange, George thought, especially since he just had the wiring checked by the local power company, which pronounced it in fine condition. Around the same time, another man tried to sell a family life insurance, and it became irate when George declined. Your gosh darn house is going up in smoke, he warned, and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you've been making about, the Mi about Michelin. George was indeed outspoken about his dislike for the Italian dictator, occasionally engaged in heated arguments with other members of Fayetteville's Italian community, and at the time, he did take the man's threats. He didn't take the man's threat seriously. The older Sodder sons also recalled something peculiar just before Christmas. They noticed a man parked along the U.S. Highway 21, intently watching the younger kids as they came home from school. Around 12.30 Christmas morning, after the children had opened a few presents and everyone rushed to sleep, the shrill ring of the telephone broke the quiet. Janine rushed to answer it. An unfamiliar female voice asked for an unfamiliar name. There was, a ruckus, there was a ruckus, laughter, and glasses clinking in the background. Janine said, you have the wrong number, and hung up. Tiptoeing back to bed, she noticed that all the downstairs lights were still on, and the curtains opened, and the front door was unlocked. She saw Marion asleep on the sofa in the living room and assumed the other kids were upstairs in bed. She turned out the lights, closed the curtains, locked the door, and returned to her room. She just began to doze off when she heard one sharp bang, the roof, and then... A rolling noise an hour later, she was roused once again, this time by heavy smoke curling into her room. Janine couldn't understand how five children could perish in a fire and leave no bones, no flesh, nothing. She conducted private experiments, burning animal bones, chicken bones, beef joints, pork chops, pork chop bones, to see if fire consumed them. Each time, she was left with a heap of charred bones. She knew that the remains of various household appliances had been found in the burned-out basement. Still identifiable, an employee at the crematorium informed her bones remain after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. Their house is destroyed in 45 minutes. The collection of odd moments grew. A telephone repairman told the Sodders that their lines appeared to have been cut, not burned. They realized that if the fire had been electrical, resulting in faulty wiring, the official reportedly stated, that the power would have been dead. So how to explain the lightened room downstairs? A witness came forward claiming he saw a man at the fire scenes taking a block and tackle for removing car engines. He could have been the reason George's truck refused to start. One day, while the family visiting was visiting the site, Sylvia found a hard rubber object in the yard. Janine recalled hearing the hard thud on the roof, the rolling sound. George concluded it was a Annapolis pineapple bomb the type used in warfare. Then came reports of a sighting of a woman who claimed to have seen the missing children peering from a passing car while the fire was in progress. The woman operating a tourist was well, the woman was operating a tourist stop between Fayetteville and Charleston, 50 some miles west. She saw the children the morning after the fire. I served them breakfast, she told the police. There was a car with a Florida license plate at Tourist Court 2, a woman in the Charleston Hotel tried to... They were also seen at a hotel in Charleston.
A woman saw the children's pictures in the newspaper and said she had seen four or five of them a week after the fire. They were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. She said in the statement, I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stay in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to the children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being froze out, so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning. In 1947, Georgia Janine sent a letter about the case to the FBI. I received a re- reply from J. Edgar and said, Although I would like to be of service to this matter, relates to be of local character and does not come with investigation jurisdictions of this bureau. Next, the Sauter family turned to a private investigator who discovered the insurance salesman who had threatened George was a member of the coroner's journey that deemed fire accidental. He also heard a curious story from Fayetteville's minister about the fire chief. He thought Morris claimed no remains were found, but supposedly confided that he discovered a heart in the ashes. It hid inside a dynamite box buried at the scene. The private investigator persuaded Morris to show them the spot. Together, they dug up the box and took it straight to the local funeral director, who poked and prodded at the heart and concluded it was beef liver. Untouched by the fire. Soon afterwards, the Sodders heard rumors that the fire chief told others the contents of the box had not been found in the fire at all. It had been he had buried the beef liver in the rubble and hoped that finding any remains would plague it the family to stop the investigation. Over the next over the next few years, the tips and leads continued to come. George saw a newspaper photo of school children in New York City and was convinced that one of them was his daughter, Betty. He drove to Manhattan in search of the child, but the parents refused to speak to him. In 1949, the Sauters decided to mount a new search at the fire scene, brought Washington, D.C. pathologist named Oscar Hunter. The excavation was through uncovering several small objects, damaged coins, a burned dictionary, and several shards of vertebrae. Hunter showed the bones to a Smith's, to the Smithsonian Institution, which issued the following report. The human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, this age of the individual should have been 16 or 17 years old. The top limit of age had been about 22. Since, since the central fuse at, are normally... Since the, since the central normally fuse at 23 and they are still unfused. On this bias, the bones show greater skeleton maturation than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy, the oldest missing solder child. However, it is possible, although not probable, for a 14-and-a-half-year-old boy to show 16-to-17-year-old maturation. The vertebrae showed no evidence that they had been exposed to the fire, and the report said it's very strange that no other bones are found in the allegedly careful evacuation of the basement of the house. Nothing that the house reportedly burned for about an hour, for half an hour or so. Noting that the house reportedly burned for about a half an hour or so, it said one would expect to find a full skeleton of the five children rather than only four vertebrae. 
The Bones report report concluded they were most likely the supply of dirt George used to fill the basement to create a memorial for his children. The Smithsonian reported two hearings at the Capitol in Charleston, after which Governor Patterson and state police superintendent told the Sodders the search was hopeless and declared the case closed. Undeterred, George and Jeannie put up the billboard along Route 16 and passed out flyers offering a $5,000 reward for information to the recovery of their children. They soon increased the amount to $10,000. A letter arrived from a woman in St. Louis saying it was the oldest girl, Martha, and it was in a convent there. Another tip came from Texas where a patron in the bar overheard incriminating conversation about a long-ago Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia. Someone in Florida claimed the children were staying with a distant relative of Ginny and George's. Traveled the country. A distant relative of Janine's. George traveled the country to investigate the lead. Always returning home without an answer. In 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, Janine went to the mall and found an envelope addressed to her. It was postmarked in Kentucky, but had no return address. Inside was a photo. Fo- of his man in the mid in his, inside was a photo of a man in his mid twenties. On its flip side, a cryptic handwritten note read, "Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie. Lil boy, a nine zero one three two or thirty five. And she and George could deny the resemblance to the to their Louis, who was nine at the time of the fire. Beyond obvious similarities, dark curly hair, dark brown eyes." They had the same straight, strong nose and the same upward tilt of the eyebrow. Once again, they hired a private detective to send him to Kentucky, and they never heard from him again. They never heard from him again. The Sodders feared that if they published a letter or the name of the town on the postmark, they might harm their son. Instead, they aimed a billboard including the updated image of Lewis and hung an enlarged version over the fireplace. Time is running out for us, George said in an interview, but we only want to know if they did die in the fire. Uh, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. A year later, George died in 1968. Still hoping for a break in the case, Janine erected a fence around her property and began adding rooms to her own, building layer after layer between her and the outside. Since the fire had wore black exclusively, As a sign of mourning, I continued to do so until her own death. And continued to do so until her own death in 1989. The billboard finally came down. Her children and grandchildren continued the investigation and came up with theories of their own. The local mafia had tried to recruit him and he declined. They tried to extort money from him and he refused. The children were kidnapped by someone they knew, someone who burst into an unlocked front door, told them about the fire, and offered to take them someplace safe. They may not have survived the night. If they had, if they had lived for decades, if it was really Lewis in that photograph, they failed to contact their parents only because they want to protect them. The youngest and last surviving daughter child, Sylvia, is now 69 and doesn't believe her siblings perished in the fire. When time permits, she visits crime sleuthing websites and engages with people still interested in her family's mystery. 
Her very first memories are of that night in 1945, when she was two years old. She will never forget the sights of her father bleeding or the terrible symphony of everyone's screams. She is no closer now to understanding why.